Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Good morning again, everybody. How are you doing? Good, good, good. Grateful to be here. Grateful to open up the scriptures with you this morning. I hope you brought a Bible with you. And I would invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. We are going to continue the second part of what we began last week and looking at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And um, we're going to look at kind of the culmination of their story because after chapter 1, we don't see them again. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they all of a sudden, they, they come up on the scene almost like, well, where did that come from? We talked about that last week. In looking at gospel literature, uh, whether it be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they all start a different way, and they all have a different audience to whom they're written, so, so they're approached differently. And Luke is one of those that he wants to give this orderly account to the person he's writing to. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus, all right? And, he, and he's saying, I want you to know for certainty, or with certainty, the things that you have heard about Jesus. And he doesn't start just with Jesus' birth. He backs it up to the story of Zachary. Uriah and Elizabeth. So that's what we began looking at last week. But this week, we are going to look at the second part of their story. Recap before we get there. All right. So we have Zachariah and Elizabeth. They're older along in years. They're unable to have children. The scripture calls them righteous. But in the cultural context of that time, they would have been looked at of, mm, why is God's blessing not upon them? In other words, why don't they have children? Because children were seen as a blessing from the Lord. And then to not have children brought a certain degree of reproach or disgrace to a couple. And we, we find this, um, um, Elizabeth says this, we read last week in verse, uh, chapter 1 of Luke, verse 25, the Lord has done this for me given me a child. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. So that is what they have lived. And it's been day after day, month after month, year after year, no child until the point where it's physically unable. And that's where God comes in, in a way that I think they never would have expected. Um, And so we are going to talk about Um, the birth of John this morning and the surrounding bits of that. Now, have you ever anticipated the arrival of a kid? All right? If you've had a kid, there's probably this fear that comes over you um, as the arrival date, the due date comes. It's like, oh no, what's going to happen? Oh no, what's going to... These people, they they, they have this, I would imagine, one degree of like, whew, we are older in age and we are going to be taking care of a kid. And yet there's this buzz all around Judea because God is doing something incredible. He's doing something... um, very uh, few people have experienced. Now, it's not unknown to the Jewish patriarchs. You have Abraham and Sarah back in the Hebrew scriptures who were in their 90s uh, and they had a child. You, you have other people who were unable to conceive and then God miraculously does a work. And you have something like that here where now you have this couple who is awaiting anxiously the birth of the son, but this is not just any other boy. 
This is someone whom God is sending to be a forerunner of the Messiah. It says in Luke's gospel, to prepare the hearts of the people for the one who is to come. And so there is where we pick up our story. And we are going to read together today from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to the end of the chapter, to the end of verse 79. So would you stand with me, please, as we read the scriptures today? Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. She had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Then they said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for the writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. They were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them. And all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and he has provided redemption for his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the clutches of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege. He has given us the privilege since we have been rescued from our enemies' clutches to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us, to shine on those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our way and to our feet into the way of peace. Father, we pray that as we have now heard these words and as we study them in the next few moments, God, that you would reveal yourself to us in a new and fresh way. I pray for those who have come from a whole host of backgrounds today, God, that your peace would be upon them. They'd be reminded that they are dearly loved by you. And even though, Lord, just like in many ways, this couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, even though they don't know the big picture completely of your plan and all the details that you have set. God, I pray that we would learn what it means to trust you more today. We pray in Jesus' name. Together we say, amen. Please be seated. So, Zechariah and Elizabeth, all right? They are beyond the human ability to bear children, and God in his mercy toward them allows them to conceive. Now, one of the things I, I, I noticed as I was studying this, look at, with me at verse uh, 58. It says, Then her neighbors and her relatives, Elizabeth's neighbors, heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. 
What's interesting about the phrase rejoice with her is this is part of a fulfillment that we studied last week. When the angel comes to Zechariah, this priest who is in the holy place of the temple of God, and the angel comes to him and he says, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And he goes, what? <laughs> um, he says, here's what your son is going to do. Here's who your son is going to be. As he does that, um, one of the prophetic things that occurs, he says, there's going to be people who rejoice. And I love it that it says, because the Lord had shown her mercy, they rejoiced with her. Now, I want you to imagine, all right, they're from a place, it's likely a place called Ein Karim. This is where the family is likely from. This is the traditional home area of Zachariah and Elizabeth. It's not terribly far from Jerusalem, but remember, we have to walk everywhere in the first century. And so, Zechariah, being a priest, he, he needs to live at least somewhat decently close because he's called upon several times a year, uh, probably the three major pilgrim festivals, those are week-long each, probably two other weeks during the year. He would go as an observant priest. He would go and he would serve in the courts of the Lord. And he would do small tasks. He would do great tasks. But imagine you have this, and this picture was taken in the early 20th century. Uh, we have more modern stuff, but I wanted to give you a photo of what it looked like before it was built up more. Um, imagine the small village outside of Jerusalem, Everybody knows pretty much everyone, and they know, hey, is the day come? Has Elizabeth gone into labor? Hey, when do you think it will be? You know, I don't know if they're taking a baby pool or anything like that, trying to figure out, boy or girl, will, this, will the prediction be true? Will it not? Will, will they, um, will they have, give birth on the Monday or the Tuesday or the Wednesday? I don't know what they would do. But they're gathered around, and there's a bustle going on because a baby is coming. And there's always a bustle when a baby's coming. And we find, you know, the, the mention of the birth goes by with basically a phrase, and she had a son. And in verse 9, or 59, it says this, When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah. So really quickly in the story, we find um, Zechariah and Elizabeth being moved into the next portion of their story. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happened, but here's what Luke wants us to know. She gave birth. And now it's time to name the son. Now, now we find them uh, in the middle of this gathered around, likely with the community, to celebrate this circumcision. Circumcisions would happen on the eighth day, and there's medical reasons for that that doctors have found out. But um, they, they, they happen in accordance with God's teaching. This is, this is part of what um, God had told his Jewish people to, to do. And so Zachariah and Elizabeth are showing their faithfulness to the Hebrew Bible by circumcising their child. And part of that, and there's some, um, like, do you name the kid on the day he's born or, or she's born, or do you name him eight days later if it's a boy and he's being circumcised? There's evidence for both in the ancient context. But here we have um, that they are naming the, um, the child on the eighth day. So that was probably the tradition as it was at this particular time. And as they're getting ready to circumcise the child, they were going to name him Zachariah. Now, it's interesting. They're going to name him after his father. And, and then the question goes, all right, parents, what are you going to name your child? All right. I don't know about you. Um, some people tell all the names of what they're going to name their kids. Some people hold those things very close, you know, for 
no good reason, I guess. We, we held the names close. We're like, oof, we, in part because we were so undecided. You know, I remember a couple of times we we're literally driving to the hospital going, whew, I really hope it's not a girl this time because we don't have a name. <laughs> or I hope it's not a boy this time because we don't have a name. And we're still debating and deliberating, what are we going to name this child? Because naming a child is a very, very important thing. This is, this is an incredible moment of celebrating what God has done and giving them this opportunity to conceive and, and have a child. And what is going to be their story? Are, are they going to say, yes, God, we are jumping into what you have called us to do? Or would they go a different way? Is Zechariah going to say, no, I'm going to name him after myself because that is tradition? Or is he going to hear what the angel said to him? You're going to name him John. We have a clue as to what Zechariah is going to do because Zechariah is a righteous person. Now, righteous in the context, when it says that Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous in chapter 1 earlier in verse 6, it doesn't mean that they are perfect. It just means that um, they sought to follow all of the commands and the teachings of God. It means that if God had told them to do something, they wanted to faithfully obey. And last week we talked a little bit that the context of the temple at this time, there's a lot of um, politics, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of greed and all this kind of things involved. And so to find a faithful priest, one who does not have an agenda other than God's, it's a good thing. That's a good thing. And so, so there's all of these um, things going on. In, in circumcision, one um, commentator writes that the law required, the Torah required, that circumcisions be performed on the eighth day. This was a special event, and a Jewish custom included a charge to raise the child according to biblical law. So even as they're presenting this child for circumcision, they're saying, we want to raise this child to follow Yahweh. We want him to be instilled in the Hebrew scriptures. We want him to know his spiritual heritage, not just his birth lineage. And it's interesting because at various times throughout history, circumcision was not always permitted by whoever the ruling um, authorities were. For, for example, uh, in 168 BCE, so this is, you know, 100 and some odd years, 150, 60 years before the time in which we're talking here, um, the ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, he outlawed two things. He, he outlawed keeping the Sabbath and he outlawed circumcision. And the reason he wanted to outlaw those two, like, formative practices within Judaism is because uh, he wanted to make the Jewish people more cultured, more Hellenized, more like the people around them instead of the distinct people whom God had called them to be. Now, this along with other things that he did, um, things like placing a pig upon an altar, uh, the altar in the temple, resulted in this huge revolt to retake the temple and to purify it for the worship of Yahweh. And in Antiochus Epiphanes and the revolt that happened after him because of all these things he did to desecrate the temple is eventually what led to what is known as the festival of Hanukkah. 
We're not going to go down that path. There's a whole bunch there, uh, but that will be maybe for another time. Uh, Hanukkah was a festival that Jesus celebrated. It's also called the Festival of Dedication, and it, and it celebrates how after they've cleared the temple and they've purified it, they only had, as, as, it, as uh, the story goes, they only had one, enough oil to light the menorah, which is the Jewish candle, and only enough to light it for one day, and yet it lasted for eight days. And so they celebrate oil, they celebrate the light and all that kind of stuff right around this time of year, Um, they being the Jewish people. Um, My point of all of this is that the practice of circumcision is a marker of this couple's obedience to God's covenantal relationship. And they, they, they had this passion not to go the way of the things around them and the people around them. They had this passion to say, God, what do you want from me? I will do it. And we can begin to apply that immediately in our lives. There's a lot of things in our world today and in our culture today that take us away from what God has taught us to do. The pressure that we experience as old people, as not old people, as young people, as super young people can be really, really great. But regardless of our age, regardless of our experience, one of the things that we're faced with, and one of the things that Zachariah and Elizabeth show us is, it is possible to live before God and to walk with him. It's possible to walk in his ways, and in fact, that's the godly, that's the most beneficial way, not only for our lives, but for his kingdom. God wants to walk with us. God wants to dwell in us so that we have the power to do that which is right and pleasing in his sight and that which looks different from the world and the culture around us. And so nowhere else does this come to greater foreground other than when they're getting ready to name this child. So it says in verse 59, they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day. They were going to name him Zechariah. Why? Because that's tradition. That's culture. It's after his father. And at this time, children were often named for their grandfathers and sometimes for their fathers. And because Zechariah can't speak, um, he, um, they, they, the people around, the family around, they say, we're going to name him Zechariah. His mom responds, no, he will be called John. She, she puts the hammer down. But then they look to Zechariah, because at this time, fathers held the last say in what you are going to name your child. And um, he says, not through verbal words, um, he says this. He asks for a writing tablet, you know, motions for it and so on. Probably something that looked like this. A piece of wood that's overlaid with wax that they could write on so that they could hear or so they could watch and communicate. Just imagine Zechariah, though. He's been nine months not able to speak, and yet he's doing everything he can to communicate what little he can through motions and gestures, writing on this, and it comes down to this, what's Zechariah going to write? And he writes, his name is John. His name is John. Zechariah has backed up his wife, as he should, because it's God's word to them. Together, they are a team. They, however that conversation went in those nine months, Zechariah knew we have to call this child John. And his wife knew. Together, they were a team. They said, we will call this child John because that is the name the angel had told us to name him. Now, naming, as we talked about last week, 
is, is very, very significant. Um, and so in choosing to name his um, child John, he chooses to do what God has told him to. Not what culture, not what tradition dictated. One um, scholar says this, The choice of the surprising name indicates that a major lesson of obedience has been learned. And as noted above, when God names a child, that child is significant in his plan. In Jewish tradition, if, if you name something, you take responsibility for it. In the book of Genesis, when Adam is naming the animals... He takes responsibility for caring for them. When a parent names a child, they are taking that responsibility, saying, I will raise this child with God's help to the best of my ability. When God names a child, all right, God names this child, John, through the angel who appears to Zechariah. When God names a child, God takes responsibility, in this case, for something very special that is going to take place throughout John's life. The result of Zachariah's obedience um, is that this child is named John. Now, the name of John is, is an interesting name. How many Johns do we have here in the room? Anybody named John? Okay, we've got a couple Johns. Fantastic. All right, I hope you know what your name means. I won't put you on the spot and ask you what your name means, but your name means Yahweh is gracious. All right, your name means Yahweh is gracious. Last week, we looked at Zechariah's name. Zechariah means whom God remembers. All right, in the midst of all the darkness of this period, it's as though Zechariah's dad said, God remembers his people. Elizabeth's name means one who swears by God. It gives a picture into whom she might become because at this time you would name your, your child with a hope for something that they would do or someone who they would be. God names John. Yahweh is gracious. How is Yahweh gracious? Yahweh is gracious to provide a son for this couple, a couple who was unable to have kids for their entire life. God was gracious to them as individuals. I love that personal touch that God has. Yahweh is also gracious to provide one who would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And so on the one hand, he hasn't forgotten this couple. On the other hand, he hasn't forgotten his people and his promises to them. In, in being obedient to naming this baby John, both Zechariah and Elizabeth are demonstrating their trust in God's plan and purpose. We can think about this just for a moment here. In what ways can we demonstrate our trust in God's plan and purposes for our life? Some of us may be in the sense or the state of life where we go, God, I don't know what your plan and your purpose is. I, I, I don't know, God, do you want me to go here? Do you want me to go here? And that can be a real wrestle for a lot of us. I've been there several times. When it comes down to it, just imagine Zachariah and Elizabeth, day after day, year after year, month after month. Day, month, year. That's how it goes. <laughs> what do they do? They simply do what God has already told them to do. Nothing more, nothing less. They don't do things outside of their control. They simply 
learn what it means to trust God in the midst of everything. And what happens as a result of this is um, he writes, his name is John, and they're all amazed. And verse 64 says this. It says, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. There's a psalm that goes, open my lips, Lord, that my mouth might declare your praise. And I wonder sometimes if Zechariah had uh, this experience just in a very, like, I wonder if this scripture came to his mind as this goes on. So he hasn't been able to talk for a long time. He writes, his name is John. Everyone's amazed. All of a sudden, there is words flowing out of this man's mouth. You probably can't get him to be quiet at all. And in the midst of this, his mouth opens and his words begin to, to declare how good God is. Praise is the first thing that comes out of his mouth as it is opened. Now, um, one of the things that I love, and we're going to look at the, uh, the prophecy here about all, all of the, um, all the things that then uh, come out of his mouth. But I love that praise is the first thing because he could have done a lot of things. He could have said, oh my goodness, I can speak. He, he could have gone, oh my goodness, do you see my baby boy? That's probably what he would have done. He probably would have hold, hold him, held him up like in um, Lion King. He'd been like, this is my son. Ah, da, da, da. No, he, that's not what he did. The first words out of this gentleman's mouth are, wow, look at God's work. Look at how amazing God is. And quite frankly, this humbles me. Because there's a lot of things in my life that don't evoke praise right away. You know, I was putting together a desk yes, yesterday. Yesterday, I was putting together a desk. And um, no, it was the day before. I was putting together a desk at my house. We have newly painted walls in our house. And one of the things fell over and it did a little ding in the wall. I did not overflow with praise to the Lord at that moment. I went, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And now I have patchwork to do. In the middle of all this, all that has happened in his life, the first thing is praise. If you were to open your mouth right now, what would be the first thing to come out? Would it be fear? Would it be criticism? Would it be anger? Would it be praise? I don't know what life looks for you this week. My prayer for us, trust me, us, one of the things that would come out of our mouth first, whenever we engage with people, whenever we experience something in life, would be, bless you, God, for your good gifts to us. So, we, we have um, this going on. Praise comes out of his mouth, and it says, Fear came on all those who lived around them, and all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, What will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand is with him. Now, the Lord's hand is an interesting phrase, because when it talks about the Lord's hand, it means that the Lord's deliverance is right around the corner. You can look at Exodus 13, verse 3, or Exodus 15, 6, Isaiah 5, 12, Isaiah 26, 11, I have more. You look at these mentions of when the Lord's hand is talked about, it means that the opportunity for deliverance is around the corner. 
God being with him means God is doing something. And in a time when people wonder, God, what are you doing? All of a sudden, the Lord's hand is with him. What is God going to do in this person's life? Um, in his silence, Zechariah, one writer says, has learned to believe or to trust God. Now, I mentioned last week that it may even be that God used silence to help Zechariah to think and to pray through the question, what is God doing? And I ask you, if you're here this morning or if you're joining us online and you're saying, God, what are you doing in my life? (laughs) Could I recommend something? Be still, as scripture says, and know that I am God. A lot of things in our life can be solved with, solved by not placing our expectations upon God and just being ready and willing for God to use us and to make himself known to us. To say, God, here I am. God, make me usable for your service today. I, I love what one writer, this is Dr. Darrell Bach says, he says it this way, with John, God has prepared the way for his promise. God's ways were not traditional or what had been culturally expected, but they were his ways nonetheless. Sometimes going God's way means going against the grain of culture. God's silence is Zachariah as a means of discipline for not believing his word. But in doing so, God uses that as an opportunity not to leave Zechariah alone, but to instill trust and who he is, his word and his character. Where might God want you to have trust built today? Now, we come down to the next section. The Lord, his hand is with him. Zachariah is learning all these lessons of trust and what it means to be faithful amidst a culture that would maybe say, you don't need to do that. We come down to verse 67, and it says, Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and he has provided redemption for his people. Now, he starts this song, and if you were to write a song after you had a child born, you might be like, oh, he's got great blue eyes, and he's got a, you know amazing lock of brown hair or something like that. I don't know what you'd write. That's not what I would write, but maybe... There's a lot of interesting songs out there. We'll just put it that way. In response to all that God has done, he's promised a son. He has silenced his voice. Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. There's nine months of silence. John's name is written on the tablet. After all this, praise comes out of his mouth. Zechariah then is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to give a prophecy that's going to exclaim the working of God through him. And the first thing that he talks about in this song is... Praise be the Lord. So we talked about that. Why are we praising God? The second part of verse 68 says, because he has visited and he has provided redemption to his people. The core of Zechariah's song is this. God is bringing a redeemer. God is moving in a way that will still yet to be completely understood, but God is bringing redemption to people. We are a people who are lost. We are in darkness. We are in sin. And all this is felt deeply by Zechariah. And he says, God has brought redemption. God is doing a work that only God can do here. 
Now, um, there is, uh, show you this. This is a wall that's in a place called Delphi. It's at the sanctuary of Apollo. And one of the things that is inscribed upon here are inscriptions of freed slaves. The idea of slavery was not new to the Jewish people. And in, and in fact, even during this time, while they're not slaves, they're definitely living under the, uh, the rule of Herod, and they're definitely living under the rule of Rome. If Rome says it's supposed to go, it goes. Here we have inscriptions of free slaves. And, and there's more than 800 slaves who were emancipated and all their names and such were written on this big stone tablet to say, here's who's free and here's who's free and here's who's free. Redemption is different than emancipation. Okay. Redemption, although they're similar, redemption involves the payment of a ransom to secure a person's freedom. And so it's interesting that Zechariah doesn't just go, hey, we are going to be free people. Hey, we're not going to have Rome over us. Hey, we're, we're going to have a Messiah. He, he is tapped in through the work of the Holy Spirit in this prophecy. He is understanding or proclaiming that there is redemption that is taking place. That there's a payment of a ransom. God has visited and provided redemption for Israel. In other words, they have not redeemed themselves. And as you go through the Gospel of Luke, we'll find this theme over and over and over again. It, it's not that Israel can do anything to save themselves. It's, it's that they need someone to come rescue them. And that's what's promised even back in the book of Genesis. That God would make a way, that God would send a son and it would crush the serpent. Redemption does not mean that sin has disappeared. It means that sin has been paid for. It means that sin has been paid for. And he goes from this exaltation and praise of redemption that is being done by God to um, verse 69, which is appropriate for our hunters in the room. Uh, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us from the house of his servant David. So some of you may have gone hunting recently. Maybe you even got a buck, all right? This is an ibex at a place called Engedi over in Israel. And you can notice the, the huge uh, antlers on this thing. Antlers or these horns in scripture are a way that writers talk about strength. Because if you're going to fight someone and you're, you know, an animal like that, you want to use those to your best advantage. You, you want to go antler to antler, preferably not get gored. Um, and so to have a strong horn is something that scripture picks up in places like this, Psalm 18, where it says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I call to the Lord, who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. So, in the midst of this horn of salvation, you have passages like this that say, God is the one who saves. God is the one who is worthy of praise. He will save us from our enemies. This is part of God's word to his people through Zechariah, through the prophecy that comes with the Holy Spirit. God provides redemption. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of a servant David. 
tying it back to that lineage of David, just as he spoke by the mouth of the ancient prophets or the holy prophets in ancient times, verse 70, salvation from our enemies and from the clutches of those who hate us. Verse 72 says, he has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant. I love that because it reminds us of a time in which the the people who have come before Zechariah here. The ancient forefathers didn't always trust God. And he's dealt mercifully with them because they couldn't save themselves either. And he is uh, remembering how God will be faithful to his promises no matter what. But then he says this in verse 73. He says, um, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, tying it all the way back to Abraham. And he says this, he has given us the privilege since we have been rescued from our enemy's clutches. All right, so we're talking about what Zechariah and his people could do. He's given us the privilege to serve him without fear, right? To, to, to serve him without fear. In the midst of all this, he's saying, God, you have been our salvation. You have been our redeemer. And now we can serve you without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all of our days. This is part of what God has given his people to do. Now, the word serve here is simply the word for worship, all right? To worship is to serve. To serve is to worship. It it comes from the same root idea. And this is a very appropriate word for Zechariah because he's a priest. He's used to going to the temple to serve, sometimes glamorous jobs, sometimes not glamorous jobs. He's had the really glamorous job of of lighting the incense and praying that prayer and meeting the angel. But in the midst of all this, he knows the daily grind of what it means to serve. You know, taking out the trash, (laughs) making sure that this people coming to gather at the temple to worship is helped and they're assisted in their sacrifice. He he knows what it's like in the mix of the day up and the day down to say, in the middle of all this, God, how do I be faithful day after day, month after month, year after year? And this is the call. To serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence for all of our days. This is Zechariah's desire. And he goes then to this. Speaking of his child, he says, And you, child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So that's what his son would become. And that's what his son would do. And in the midst of that, Zachariah and Elizabeth are faced with this. How then do we live? What does it mean to be followers of, of Yahweh in a time where culture says, I want you to do this and this and this, but God says, do this and this and this. He says, I w- we want to serve God without fear and in right, in, without fear, in holiness and righteousness, in his presence all of our days. There's a lot of things that we can be worried about today. And the temptation can be to escape the difficulty and the sin of this world, and yet God has placed us here to share the gospel He's placed us here to bring hope to the downhearted. He's placed us here to learn what it means to not lean upon our own understanding and in all of our ways acknowledge him and allow him to guide our paths. 
many times, I say this about myself, but I think it's true of us all. Many times we are more preoccupied with our desires and our agendas, not God's. God's agenda for us is to be faithful disciples, to faithfully serve God in the context he has placed us. And as we do so, scripture reminds us that we are not alone. We are not alone. We, we work in his presence all of our days. And how do we do that? The book of Acts says, it reminds us that God's spirit empowers us to be his witnesses. He empowers us to, to learn what it means to walk faithfully after God today. I ask you this in your life and in mine. Do you trust God this morning? Are are there areas of doubt or areas of confusion that you can bring to God this morning and say, God, I don't know what to do with this. But God, I lay it at your feet and I say, God, I want your will to be done, not mine. Is our lives, are our lives, lives that would declare the praise of God? As we learn what it means to trust him, do our lives declare God's praise? Do we have a life, as we look at our lives right now, do we have a life that we are yielding continually to the Holy Spirit, asking him to work? See, I love Zachariah and Elizabeth because they're not perfect people. They're people whom God used. And God used them because they simply said, here we are. Day after day, month after month, year after year. What would that faithfulness look like for us today? I invite you to just take a moment of silence and prayer before God. Our Father, in the midst of this day in which we live, our lives are often bombarded by a host of options and a host of things that would cause us to pursue what might be culturally acceptable, but not in keeping with what you want for us. And God, here in this moment, we want to be about you. We want the glory of God to be revealed through our lives by the working of your spirit. God, we want to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the midst of praying that prayer, God, that leads us to a greater place of dependence. Thank you, God, for teaching us dependence. It is a gift from you. Thank you, God, for meeting our needs even before we sometimes recognize that we have them. Thank you, God, for being more than enough for us today. Thank you, God, for sending your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Jesus, to provide redemption through his death and his resurrection. 
God, we stand, we stand before you, not in our own righteousness. We stand in the righteousness that is given to us by Christ. Thank you, God, for that gift. And as we go out into this week, God, give us great discernment to know what it means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And pray this for the glory of our risen Messiah, Jesus. We pray his name. Together we say, amen. Would you stand with me, please, as we conclude? Next week, we will be meeting at 10 a.m. We'll be singing many carols, reading Luke chapter 2 together, have a couple of thoughts on that, uh, but looking forward to celebrating Christmas with you all before um, Christmas actually comes the following Friday. But until then, God has given us lives in which to live for his glory. Um, He's given us air in our lungs to breathe in and to breathe out. These are all gifts from our Father. And so with these gifts and many more, as we go, may the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance towards you and give you his peace, his shalom, the peace that passes all understanding forever and for always. In Jesus' name, amen.